Great to be with you all this morning as we give attention to God's Word together. If I haven't met you, my name is Ken DeLage, serve as the lead pastor here. It is a joy to have you with us. If you're just visiting or a guest, thank you for being here with us today. We are in a series in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. So one of the more difficult things that I've had to watch, or that I've watched, over the course of my life, and I'm sure many of you would relate to this, is the decline of the influence of the church on our culture. It is difficult to watch. It's hard to watch because we know that as people align themselves with the principles of God's Word, humans flourish. And when they don't, humans suffer. And a lot of the changes that we're seeing give us concern for kids being born into where we're heading. And the human suffering that will result from not forming our culture around God's Word. But the reality is that the days of the church having a large cultural influence in the West are waning. The external power of the church is diminishing. I'm not here to doom and gloom it. I don't know tomorrow. I don't know the future. And let's pray for a revival. But, apart from that, there's a clear trajectory that we've all been watching. And Christians who have grown up in and have grown accustomed to being a Christian in a church with influence have some adjusting to do. As we learn to live in a church with little power. Little Power. That's actually the phrase that Jesus uses in the book of Revelation to talk about one of the churches back then. It was a church of little power. It's the church in Philadelphia, and it's not that Philadelphia, all right? It's another Philadelphia, an ancient city of Philadelphia in the nation now called Turkey. This church was a small church. It was numerically small. It was not influential. They, they, they were not drawn from... The, the upper echelons of society where they had political and cultural influence. They were a small church. They were a hardy church. They were a faithful church. But they were having little cultural impact. They weren't forming the direction that the city went. Perhaps even their evangelistic efforts were not all that fruitful. They had little power. And Jesus addresses them in Revelation 3. This is the sixth of seven letters that he writes to his churches in Asia and to his church worldwide. What does he say? I believe we need to hear this this morning because we have some catching up to do. The global church is quite used to being a church of little power in their culture. The historic church has had to learn the lessons of what does it look like to be a faithful believer in a church of little power. Christians all over the world and throughout church history have had to learn how to survive in the desert, how to thrive in the wilderness. 
And most here have not needed to practice those lessons yet. So we have some catching up to do. When, it, when a church is not respected in the culture, when in fact to be aligned with the church is, is to lose and lose and lose in the eyes of the culture. When, when cultural, influ, uh, cultural ideas are, are well beyond our ability to influence and it's going away that we wish it wasn't going to go. When perhaps even our efforts to produce change or produce fruit or to even preach the gospel seem to produce so little impact. How then do we please Christ? How then do we walk faithfully? When the church has little power, how should we live? Revelation 3. We're going to begin in verse 7. And this is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. God's Word. The Lord describes the condition of the church in Philadelphia in verse 8. He says, I know that you have but little power. All of the power is outside the church. It's on the side of the government, the pagan priests. The cultural influencers. The church is small. It is insignificant. It is politically impotent. To be known as a Christian is to lose respect and standing and acceptance in the city. And we may be surprised that we learn in verse 9 that the biggest problem they were facing external to the church was from the Jewish community there in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a Gentile city but it had a large Jewish minority. So they had a synagogue, and they, they went to synagogue together. The time of the writing of this, it was about 50 years after Christ. So the, the Jewish people, and particularly Jewish leadership, had had plenty of time to assess the nature of Christ's teachings, and by now, plenty of time to harden against those teachings. The, the, the Jewish leaders were not pro-Christian. 
at this point. Uh, think, of, think of Paul before his conversion and what he was busy doing, going about to persecute the church. Well, they are, they are facing this in that city. They were the, the, the Jewish leaders considered Christ to be a false messiah. He was a liar. He was pulling people away from God and away from following God. He was stealing sheep from the, 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 the shepherd who is God. And that just, that's the reason why Jesus defines himself the way he does back up in verse 7. He always, he always introduces himself. In his introduction, he says this, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. These are the words of the Holy One, he says. I am the Holy One. This phrase is used throughout Scripture, throughout the Jewish Scriptures, to refer exclusively to God alone. And Jesus, unabashed, I am the Holy One. I come and speak to you, church, as God. So therefore, those who follow Christ are the people of God. They are the true people of God. They are the ones who, who are following Him. And those that oppose them are on the outside of the people of God. He says, I'm the Holy One, and I am the true One. I am no lying Messiah. Christ is truth. And so those who are opposing Him are opposing truth. He's not the pretender. Those who are leading people away from him are the pretend leaders of God's people. The lying leaders. And then he says that he has the key of David. David, of course, the, the greatest earthly king that, that the God's people had had. And Jesus comes in his footsteps, but greater than David, as the Davidic king, the one who can rule over all of God's people. He is the true king. And those opposing him are not his people. He's the rightful ruler, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And this picture of a key, is, it's, it's the key to the kingdom. It, it, it's the key to the door he's going to go on to talk about here. He's going to open a door that no one can shut. He's going to shut a door that no one can open. And he alone has the key to that door. So verse 7 says, Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And so he speaks to his church that is on the outside of culture, pushed to the margins of society, that has been excommunicated from the synagogue and shoved out from being the connected with the Jewish people. Is that, have you been excommunicated by society? Have you been shut out from the synagogue? Are you on the outside looking in because you're a church with little power? Well, dear church, let me tell you about another door. Another kingdom. And you're not going to get pushed out of this one. I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Before you is the open door 
to my kingdom. It's the open door to a, a better society and a better synagogue and a better temple. And I alone have the key to open it. The key to this heavenly kingdom to dwelling eternally with God. See? I have opened it. Who can shut it? Which of your earthly enemies with all of their power can shut this door? I'm the Holy One. I am the True One. I am the key-wielding King. And no one is able to shut the door and keep you out. None can stop you. And oh, by the way, I shut doors that no one can open. And so none of your enemies will follow in after you. For I will close them out. He would say, my church on earth may not be powerful. But I, their king, am powerful. The Lord is powerful. He has the key, the only key that matters. The key to, to life and eternity and to, to God and to the kingdom. So, friends, if we're going to catch up with the worldwide church who knows what it's like to live in a church with little influence, with little power, we're going to catch up with the historic church, then, then we're going to need this. And we need to understand this. Do not assume that a weak church has a weak king. Do not assume that. It could be so easy to assume that. When things go wrong, when things aren't going well, when there seems to be little impact, when everything is against us, it can be so easy to think that's a reflection on the king, and it's not. The king's power is undiminished. He holds the key of David. Right now, the church is persecuted in China, and terribly persecuted in North Korea. And it grows so slowly through hard ground in Thailand and in India. And in the West, it seems as though the church is receding. Friends, don't measure the power of the king by the progress of the church. He is the king who wields this key. A powerless church has no powerless king. A small church has no small king. A weak church has no weak king. No, not at all. This is the holy one we're talking about. He's the one that when he stands up, all the angels fall down, hide their faces in the dust before him. He is the true one. He, is, he speaks truth. He is truth. And listen, the truth is not defined by our neighbors. It's not defined by our culture. It doesn't matter if every man, woman, and child on the planet rebels against the truth. The truth is still the truth, and it's not up for election. He is the truth, and he will win in the end. And he alone has the key of David. He can open the door for his people. He is working for his people. So, so in the last day, Who's going to get to go into that kingdom? Who's going to get to, to enter that door at the end? Which people of all the peoples on the earth will prosper? Who will be not powerless in the end? Who will be welcomed into the center at the end? I'll tell you who. Whoever Jesus lets in. 
That's who. That's who gets to be in the kingdom. Whoever Jesus lets in. Because he has the key. He and no one else. He opens the door. He lets his people in. He shuts the door. And he keeps his enemies out. This is, this is speaking of heaven and hell. He opens the door that his people can enter into the, the banquet hall. And shuts it to keep all pretenders out. So, friend, there is uh, salvation implications for this. Someone may have told you that to be a Christian, you should let Jesus into your heart. True enough. But I think another perspective would be very helpful to add to that one. If you would be a Christian, you should be far less concerned with where you let Jesus and far more concerned with where he lets you. He's the one with the key. He's the one who decides destiny. The picture is not you holding the key to your heart, deciding what to do with Jesus. The picture is he holds the key of David and he decides what to do with you. Stop pretending to be God. As though you tell him where to go. Would you be saved? Then bow before him and ask for mercy. That's how you're saved. Would you be a Christian? Stop acting like you're God of your life. You decide what to do with your life and your heart. Repent of acting as God. And acknowledge him as God. Listen, would you be saved? I have to warn you. You're going to need to be saved from Jesus. Because he's the one who holds the key and who shuts doors that no one can open. He's the warden at the gate and he decides who goes where, what gates are open and what are closed. Friend, if you have longed, scorned Jesus, you have scorned the one who has your destiny in his hands. You would be saved. You must be saved from Jesus. And if you're going to be saved, you have to be saved by Jesus also. Because he came not first to judge the world, but first to save all those who would look to him. You want to encounter Jesus differently on that last day? Encounter him today. Ask him for repentance. Ask him to forgive you. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. For all who do, he opens the door that no one can shut. So, church, first thing that we need to know, that we need to remember, that's going to be hard for us to know, it's going to be hard for us to remember. As we see the church getting less powerful, it is so easy for us to think that our king is getting less powerful. That's not the case. Jesus is king regardless of what we see going on. And if we're basing our hope down here, our hope's going to get dashed at times. So, first thing to remember, the weak church has a powerful king. Now, the call to this passage is a call to faithfulness. There's a call to faithfulness throughout the whole thing. In verse 8, he says, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Over in verse 
10. You have kept my word about patient endurance. And then again in verse 11. Hold fast what you have. So, he is calling his people to hold fast. He's calling his people to keep his word. To not deny his name. This is a basic call to faithfulness. Christ's concern is for our faithfulness. Christ's concern is for our faithfulness, not our powerlessness. His concern is for our faithfulness, not our cultural influence. His concern is for our faithfulness, not our fruitfulness in all the ways that we want to see things happen. Now listen, I want to see things happen. I would love to see this culture turn around. I would love to see a generation of young people grow up and throw off the junk and follow hard after Jesus. I'd love to see revival. I'd love to see a church built. People freed from addictions and coming to Christ. I want to see those things. Let's labor for those things. But let's not put our hope in those things. Ours may be to serve at a time of weakness. And so let us serve. Ours may be to be in a church where he says, hold on. So let us hold on. Let us be faithful. His, his, his words, do not deny my name. Keep my word. Hold fast to what you have. See, we have to catch up here with the church across the world and the church through history. The first lesson, right? First lesson. Don't assume that a powerless church means we have a powerless king. The second one right here, he calls us not to results, but to faithfulness. He calls us to faithfulness. So, let's not focus on the perceived power of the church, the cultural influence, the cultural impact. Focus, friend, on your faithfulness to Jesus. He commands us not, be powerful. He commands us, be faithful. He commands us not save thousands of people as though we could save one. He commands us, don't deny my name. Witness of me in your life and with your words. He commands us not have a bigger impact. What's wrong with you? He commands us hold fast through this time and season. The reality is Jesus is the king. So our, the, out, uh, the outcome of our efforts is in his hands, not ours. Ours is to be faithful. He brings fruit. He brings change. He's the Lord of history. He knows what he's doing. He's going to take the culture and, and, and history wherever he wants it to go. Ours is to be faithful and not get above our pay grade and spend all our time focusing on what is Jesus's to do. Listen, the more time we spend focusing on that which is Jesus's to do, the worse we're going to be at what he's called us to do, which is to be faithful witnesses at our times in church history. So here's the lesson here. Is the, Jesus is king and we're not. We, we might not like how things are going. I don't like how things are going. He's king. So, so let's labor hard together. Let, let, let's labor for the salvation of the lost. Let's labor to build a strong church. Let's labor to raise our kids to know the Lord. And then let's trust Jesus 
for the outcome. And trust him for the results because Jesus is the king. So if you're going to survive at a time when the church is weak, you've got to stay off his throne. Stay in your lane. Let the general lead the army. Stand at your post while he leads the army. So here are two people. Here are two people. One is laboring hard for the salvation of those around them, sharing the gospel with those around them. They're, they're, they're raising their kids to know the Lord. They're, they're sacrificially serving in the local church. They, they are, they're, they're working hard, 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours a week to serve their clients and, and the people around them and praying for the salvation of those around them. And, and the whole time they're doing that, their eyes are on Christ and they're trusting Him for the outcome. Now here's, here's another person. And they're doing all the same things. They're laboring hard for those around them to be saved. They're raising their kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They're sacrificially serving the church. They're seeking the good of the culture that's around them. They're doing their best job at work. But their eyes are always on the outcome. Always on the outcome. Always on the outcome. And I can tell you what. One of them is joyful. And one of them is joyless. And one of them is fearless. And one of them is fearful. Friends, we must keep our eyes on Him. Jesus is King. We're not. Let's be faithful to the King wherever He calls us to stand. All right, so the second thing, He calls us not to results, but to faithfulness. And then finally... As we get towards the end of the letter, he, he gives some promises to his people. And the first promise is in verse 10. I'm going to read, and perhaps like me, you'll find it a little bit confusing. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I just want to think on this verse and what does this mean. So my first kind of question then is is this verse is this a promise to the church in philadelphia in the year 80 a.d is this a church to the men and women and children of that church that they were going to face some kind of trial that was coming upon the whole world and that he would keep them from it yes that's exactly right because this was written to them this is a letter from christ to those people first. Now, is it also true that this is a promise to the universal church? That he will keep us from a worldwide hour of trial? Yes, it is that as well. For these letters are given to all the churches. As it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To all churches at all times. So this was to them, this is to us. Is it also possible that this promise is for the last generation of the church to cling to when the hour of trial comes like it has never before, kind of the great tribulation? Yes, it's for them as well, for their part of the church too. So, all I mean to say in asking these questions is to be clear that this promise is not only for the final generation of the church and only in reference to that last day. This is a promise for every generation 
of the church to hold on to. Great, but what's it mean? What's it mean? Because here's what it says. I, he will keep us from the hour of trial. Now, many have thought, and I don't blame them, that this means he will remove us from trial. Some have seen here evidence of a rapture of the church before a tribulation. Actually removing us from it. But I don't think so. So when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I'm not going to use the Greek words, but keep from, those two Greek words, are only used together twice in the whole Bible, the whole New Testament. One of them is here. The other is John 17, 15. And it's a great one we can compare with because it's the same author, John, as this is. And he's quoting the same person, Jesus. So it's, it's a tight fit that we can expect that the words would be used very similarly. And what is Jesus doing in John 17, 15? He's praying for his people, and this is what he says. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you... Keep them from the evil one. There's the keep from. Keep them from the evil one. So what is Christ praying for back there? He's, he's not praying that they would never face a temptation from the enemy. He's not praying that they would never go through a trial that came at them from the enemy because he had just said, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world. Instead, what, he's, what his prayer is is they'd be spiritually protected from the enemy as they face trials and tribulations and temptations, that the enemy would be unable to take from them the faith that saves them, unable to grasp them out of the hand of the Lord. He's praying for spiritual protection for his people. So it is in the book of John, and I believe so it is here in the book of Revelation. So when Jesus promises that he will keep us from the hour of trial... It's not that he will remove us so entirely that we have nothing to face. It's that he will protect us so completely that we have nothing to fear. Fear in the greater sense. Yes, will there be some physical trials? Yes, there will. Will our Lord walk with us? Yes, he will. Will he keep all of his people totally safe no matter what they face through every generation of the church? Yes, he will. He will Keep us and keep us and keep us. This is a sweet promise. Now, perhaps I haven't convinced you that this is keeping us through trials. Let verse 11 do its work. As he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So having just said he's going to keep us from trial, he then says, hold fast. Listen, if there's no more trial, there is no need to hold fast. But as he keeps us through the trial, it changes the whole dynamic of how we're thinking about this. Lord, a worldwide trial for a powerless church? What can I possibly do? You hold fast because I will keep you. That's how this works. I will keep you. So take heart and hold fast. However powerless it seems to you, however powerful the world around you seems, however big their threats, however big the impact that the culture makes upon you, I will keep you so you hold fast. That is 
good news, friends. That is good news. Listen, weak church, if Christ will keep us, and he will, it's not really an if. If Christ will keep us, what more do we need? If he keeps us, we will be kept. So let us hold fast. Second promise he gives in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Several pieces here. He's, he's writing names upon us and making us pillars. We're not going to leave temple. Let me give you the, the thrust of all the pictures together, and then I'll, I'll look briefly at each of them. The thrust is that we will be permanently and immovably and unchangeably defined by our relationship with God. We'll be in the kingdom and none can change it. We will be His in the truest and most final sense. It goes right back to He's going to open a door that no one can shut. We're going to be in His kingdom. So the name of God written upon us. Three names are going to be written. The first is the name of my God. You know the in the Old Testament, the, the priest would, would wear a turban on his head. And on that turban, they affixed a gold plate to the turban that said, Holy unto the Lord. The name of the Lord on the forehead of the priest. And we're going to have the name of God upon us. And then it's the name of the, the city, the New Jerusalem, She's going to come down out of heaven. This is, this is the kingdom. The re receiving the kingdom. This is, this is the doors you want to come into. This is, this is God's people dwelling in the presence of God for all time. And we won't need a passport. Its name is going to be written right on us. And finally, the name of Christ Himself writing his name upon us, we will be his. Now listen, I, I don't know if this is just symbolic. I say just symbolic. In other words, I don't know that we're going to get tattoos. I don't know. But whether it is that or it's symbolic, it is at least that, God's very name upon us. And if it is symbolic, then what it symbolizes is something greater. So remarkably owned and identified with God that it is obvious and visible to all who see us. And obvious and visible to ourselves as we would see a tattoo upon us. We belong to Him. Glory to God. But then, he says that we will be a pillar in his temple and will never go out of it. Uh, I think to appreciate that, you have to appreciate the presence of God. The temple is where God is. And here's what David declared back in Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tent of the wicked. Better is one day in your courts. Listen, pillars, they last longer than a day. They're there for good. Pillars are fixed part of the architecture of the temple. They're not going anywhere. We're not going to get one day in his courts better than a thousand elsewhere. We're going to have a thousand days in his courts and that'll just be the beginning. And then, as though that didn't quite seal it, he says, and never shall he go out of it. I cannot imagine that moment of entering the visible presence of God. Some of you are close. Perhaps some years. Perhaps some months. Before you are absent from the body and present with the Lord. That day is coming for all of us. But the one thing I, I think of, one of the things, is that having just entered his presence, I think the, the, the one thing we'll be aware of is, I don't want to leave. I don't ever want to leave this. And that's the promise. That very thing. Never made to leave. This is the one who holds the key of David. Who opens the door for his people and makes sure they all come in. Glory to God. These are powerful promises for a powerless church. So, how do we catch up to the global church? How do we catch up to the historic church as we accustom ourselves in some ways at least to being in a church with little power remember church we have a powerful king remember focus not on results focus on faithfulness to that king and remember to hold fast to these promises that our king has given to us has he said he will keep us through days of powerlessness? Has he said that he will write his own name upon us? Has he said that, that he will situate us as pillars in his temple? Has he said that we'll enter the presence of God and never leave? Has he said it? Then it will be so. We believe you, Lord. Help our unbelief. He who has an ear to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Worship team, come on up. Let's stand together. Jesus, you are the King. And I pray, Lord, that our eyes would not fall to lesser things and measure you by them. Lord, fix our eyes on you the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David. Or let us not measure You by our weakness, by the problems that we face. Lord, let us trust in You as the powerful King. Lord, help us to be faithful unto You. Let You be King to walk faithfully before you. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we could do so.
we ask in Jesus' name.